This year, focus on what's truly important to you and let HelloFresh take care of dinner with fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and recipes delivered right to your door. Get 16 free meals plus three gifts with code SISTERS16 at HelloFresh.com slash SISTERS16 or look for the link in our show notes. Now on with the show. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins-Store, Barb McQuaid, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Hope you have all seen us in our amazing Sisters-in-Law merch. If you haven't, you can see us online and you can go to politicon.com slash merch and get yourself a Sisters-in-Law t-shirt, hoodie, and so many more items. Today, we'll be discussing Flores versus the NFL, the latest Trump developments, and Alexander Vindman's lawsuit against Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and other members of Trump's team. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get to the serious part of the show, we wanted to talk about the Olympics. Are you all watching? I know the opening isn't until after we record this, but... Uh, they've already been doing figure skating and moguls and other uh, sports. What have you been watching, Barb? You're our sports guru here. I love the Olympics. You know, I know this year there's a lot of concern about human rights abuses in China, and so it, it takes on some political significance. But just the sport for sto- sport's sake, the international competition, um, you know, the uh, shared community with the world, with athletes from all over the world competing against each other, I think is a beautiful thing. Um, but I really love, I love all of it. I love watching it. Uh, it inspires me to want me to do things like, you know, on Saturday morning, I'm going to go cross-country skiing because I watch people cross-country skiing and I think that looks fun. I'm going to do that. Of course, I can't do it nearly as well as everybody uh, in the Olympics. But the thing I love the most are the stories that come out of it. Uh, you know, there will be somebody, there will be some big names, Michaela Schifrin or one of these big names who win a lot of medals and that's wonderful and it's exciting to watch. But then there are these people you've never heard of and you'll hear their amazing story. Like Suni Lee, remember her from the, who won the uh, gold medal in gymnastics? You know, I had never heard her name before. And, you know, there was the really sad situation with Simone Biles, who couldn't compete because she was uh, getting the twisties. And so she had to step down. But in, instead, we heard of Suni Lee, who, who won uh, and, and may not have otherwise. So, you know, there's some drama and excitement. And I find some really inspiring and heartwarming stories. You know, Carrie Strug, when, uh, Lam- the, sticking the perfect landing and the uh, uh, the Olympics in Atlanta in 96 still sticks with me. But, you know, the Winter Games are beautiful, and I'm looking forward to all of those those human stories. How about you, Kim? Do you watch the Olympics? I do say I like, uh, I, I do like the Olympics. I do share, it, it's it's dimmed a bit this year for the reasons that you mentioned on the top and, and China and human rights um, violations and all the terrible things, the, the, the muzzling of athletes and um, is really awful. But, and I was almost, you know, contemplating as much as I love curling and I do love curling y'all. I love curling as much <laughs> as I love it. I was like, I gotta watch it. And I checked Twitter and Leslie Jones was doing running commentary on Olympic sports. And I 
was just died. Like my husband actually checked in on me to make oh, sure that I was amazing. okay. I, I was laughing so hard. <laughs> and that just put the love of it right back in my heart. I might watch it primarily through her tweets, but I am very much <laughs> uh, looking forward again to this competition. So thank you, Leslie, for, for bringing the joy back to the Olympics for me. <laughs> what about you, Joy? And I saw your tweet about her tweet. Yes. And saw she was featuring the... Um, figure skaters and it was a wonderful tweet so it is a way to follow it it's so great it's profane but hilarious our our listeners should go check it out and joyce what about you you know i i have to confess the olympics are significantly dimmed for me and i do love the olympics i usually love watch them start to finish um but but i have a lot of difficulty with the fact that they're in china And so I think like Kim, I'll be watching the Olympics this year, mostly through Leslie's commentary, which I saw last night. And I think profane doesn't even begin to capture it. It's fabulous. And everything she says is dead on the money, especially her commentary on the ice skating costumes. Um, I'm not sure when I have laughed so hard. So um, I'm very grateful to her for saving something that would have otherwise been profoundly sad. But, and and I know, Barb, this is just for you, I also participate during the Olympics in the Olympic sport of knitting. (laughs) What do you mean? I'm sure you didn't know this. I didn't see that coming. Every year during the Olympics, worldwide, tens of thousands of knitters participate in the Rav Hellenic Games, where we all knit and you can't (laughs) cast on until the day the Olympics start. And then people will, I mean, like some people will start with a sheep and get all the way to a sweater by the end of the Olympics. I actually have this very modest cowl, which I have cast on um, while we've been talking. I saved it for the podcast. So I will be participating in the Knitting Olympics for the, uh, uh, while the games are in progress. So you're going to knit for the duration of the games. Is that how it works? Yes, the I started Olympics. a project today. Theoretically, I'll finish it during the closing ceremonies. <laughs> um, and I used to actually always do that. You know, I've been doing this for probably, oh man, at least 12 years now. Um, and the first couple of times, I, I, you know, I'd pick six projects and I'd take time off from work and I'd do nothing but knit. Now it's like, yeah, I'll cast on a cowl and see how it goes. So, Can you show us what I, you're knitting? I know that, that our audience can't see start. it. It's but I, I actually dyed the yarn. It's this really pretty blue yarn, and it'll have a lot of different colors, and it'll just be a big, loose cowl wow, for cold that's weather. Outstanding. Okay, so you have to start tweeting a series of pictures from today until the closing uh, ceremony oh, so that we'll see that. your progress. Want to see that. it. And, and I share both Barb and, and your Joyce concerns about it being in China. I'm glad that we have not sent any representatives from our government. Um, I was even more concerned because in the opening ceremonies, they had a Uyghur as one of the participants, which to me is just as bad as Russia creating a uh, false flag video to show that Ukraine was about to attack them. But I did love seeing Putin having to sit sort of stone-faced as Ukraine marched on. And so... That was maybe, you know, a good political moment, but it is concerning. And and yet I share completely Barb's joy at the sport of it and the international competition. Uh, I particularly love the figure skating, all of it, the pairs and the individuals. And uh, something you may not have known is Victor Shi, my partner in iGen Politics podcast, used to be a competitive figure skater. What? 
And so I'm hoping he can, yes, indeed, he was. Oh, love it. And, wow. Yeah. So I'm hoping that he will explain to me what a triple Lutz is and how I can tell the difference between <laughs> a triple toe and a triple Lutz and all the other things. I, I do think the explanations are not up to what they need to be. I couldn't hear what you said. <laughs> is that your Siri? <laughs> it's not me. No, my, my Siri I has, just a, has a British himself. accent. I call her Fiona. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, it wasn't me. My I Siri promise. did that to me once while I was on TV. <laughs> That's great. And now I, I turn oh, all no. of the home pods oh, off. God. <laughs> hey, Barb, I just had um, the Hulk framed, as we talked about last week. And now I understand that there was a much better option than having to go into a framing store. Have you heard about FrameBridge? Yeah, FrameBridge uh, lets you order online and they will do custom framing for you. In fact, um, I got my husband for Christmas a couple of beautiful national park posters. You know, we like to travel to national parks for summer vacations. And we've got a couple that were memorable. And so that was a gift. And they're still sitting kind of rolled up uh, in the corner of a room. So I'm going to use FrameBridge to, um, to frame them. Kim, tell us about FrameBridge. Yeah, that's a great idea. So FrameBridge makes it easier and more affordable than ever to frame your favorite things without ever leaving your house. You can add a gallery wall to your home or to your office. You can send them uh, as a gift. And speaking of gifts, hint, hint, Valentine's Day is almost here. So here's how it works. Just go to framebridge.com and upload your photo. Or they'll send you packaging to safely mail in your physical photos. Preview your items online in dozens of frame styles and gallery wall layouts. You can choose your favorite or get free recommendations from their talented designers. The experts at FrameBridge will custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece directly to your door, ready to hang. Instead of the hundreds you'd pay at a framing store, they start at $39 and all shipping is free. Plus, listeners get 15% off their first order at FrameBridge.com when they use our code SISTERS. Order online at FrameBridge.com or stop by a FrameBridge store to work with a designer in person if you're in New York, D.C., Atlanta, Philly, Boston, or Chicago. Get started today. Frame your photos or send someone the perfect gift. Go to FrameBridge.com and use your promo code SISTERS to save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to framebridge.com, promo code SISTERS. That's framebridge.com, promo code SISTERS. Or look for the link in our show notes. Now it's time for us to move on to a discussion of more serious legal issues of the week. And we did have a lot of trouble picking three (laughs) topics for today, but... Let's get started with Flores versus the NFL. Yeah, so I think we should uh, start off by talking about race in general. And one of the big race legal stories this week, of course, was the lawsuit that seemed to shake the earth uh, that was filed by former NFL coach Brian Flores, who alleges that the NFL uh, had hiring practices that are racially discriminatory and that violate civil rights laws. Now, at the center of this uh, lawsuit is is something called the Rooney Rule, which 
basically requires that at least one person of color be interviewed for coaching positions. So the complaint itself is very explosive. I know we've talked about speaking indictments before, indictments that are meant not just to uh, lay out the causes of action, but sort of paint the picture uh, of the case they're trying to make. Well, this is a speaking complaint, y'all. It, among other things, compares the NFL to a plantation where white owners and managers make fortunes off the labor of Black bodies. It's really something else. Uh, And it also really highlights how claims of racial discrimination can and maybe can't be addressed by the courts and civil courts particularly. So Joyce, I'd like to start with you. It's a it's a big lawsuit and it, it alleges a lot of things, but the main thrust of it is really this claim that the NFL violated section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act. But that particular claim comes with a, a test that may not be so easy for Flores to prove. Joyce, help us understand that. Right. Like you said, Kim, that first cause of action states that the NFL violated Section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act. And in 2020, in a case called Comcast versus National Association of African-American-Owned Media, the Supreme Court ruled that the standard for proving this kind of 1981 violation is a but-for test. The question is, but for the existence of X, would Y have occurred? And the decision in Comcast was 9-0. Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote a special concurrence, but this was a firm decision by the court. So that's where we are. And that means in order to prevail on this kind of a claim, Flores has the burden of proving that race was the but-for factor in his situation. Even in the early pleading stage ahead of trial, if there is one, uh, he'll have to show that race was the but-for cause of the injuries that he suffered, meaning that the defendants would have acted differently if it wasn't for his race. So uh, there are other causes of action, as you've said in this complaint, uh, basically violations of human rights laws that subject, subjected Flores and other potential class members to disparate terms and conditions of employment relative to their white peers. And again, in in those claims, Flores will need to show that teams engaged in discrimination, here that the operative phrase is acted with discriminatory motivation, and that means his legal team will be looking for smoking guns in the discovery yeah, process. Yeah, and maybe even before the discovery process, one thing when I was a civil litigator that I learned is one of the toughest kind of cases to bring is uh discrimination, employment discrimination, and other forms of discrimination. Because if you don't clearly just lay out the facts that state a case, a lot of times courts courts will kick it uh, at the uh, dismissal phase, at, or very early phases, or it'll go early in a request for summary judgment where you have to literally, it's like you have to conduct a mini trial, put all the evidence that you have forward, put it before a judge. And if a judge rules that you don't have a case, it, they will summarily rule against you. So it's, it can be really, really difficult to make these claims. Um, Jill, so as Joyce mentioned, this is a purported class action. Um, so, and, and also it's not just seeking money. Um, Flores wants specific things from the NFL. So sort of talk about those two things, the fact that it's a class action and the specific damages that he's seeking. Why do you think he's doing that? Well, I think he's doing it because that is his real goal, is to bring about change. This was a very brave act on his part because it pretty much ends his career in the NFL. It's not an organization that has welcomed challenges in the past. And 
I think that also goes to what Joyce was talking about, or you actually in your introduction, saying that this was a speaking complaint. It lays out a lot of things that people would have been unaware of. Um, and it's very brave because the other reason that it's hard to bring these cases is that you subject yourself to a lot of criticism um, by the defendant. They're going to accuse him of being, oh, he's really just not good enough. He would have never made it, and here's why. And anything in his background will be revealed in the most awful way. So I think it's a, a hard thing to do, and that money may not be enough to motivate you to ever do it, but if you really are a believer, as he clearly seems to be, in bringing about a necessary change in this sport, and for someone who really believes that black labor is being abused for the benefit of rich owners, rich white owners, then one way to do it is by saying, here are things that will make this situation go away. And it's sort of ironic that Affirmative action is going before the court because, in a way, Rooney is affirmative action. It's sort of like, okay, well, when you're interviewing, in order to show that you're not being discriminatory, you have to at least give a chance to somebody. But he has evidence that they weren't really taking it seriously. They made the decision, but they went through the motions of having a person of color come in to be interviewed for positions. So I think it's it's all put together that the reason for he, him doing these things is to bring about a real change in how the NFL operates. Yeah, and some of the things that he's specifically asking for are things like funding a committee uh, dedicated to sourcing black investors in the NFL, allowing black uh, players and coaches uh, to participate uh, in more interview in interviewing in more positions um, that that uh, offers and are made in writing as well as termination decisions, just looking for a lot more transparency in exactly how people are hired, retained, and fired within that organization. Barb, you are our resident sports fan. Uh, I know you like football. Just give us your thoughts about this case. Yeah, I think this is such an interesting inflection point. Uh, you know, it's detailed in the lawsuit. And by the way, it's, it's a it's a really amazing complaint. You called it, Kim, a speaking indictment version of yeah. a civil complaint. It's really interesting. I mean, it's a great advocacy piece. It starts with a quote from Martin Luther King. It, it actually starts with a quote from a, a text message that Bill Belichick, the coach of the Patriots, accidentally sent saying, hey, congratulations, I heard you're getting the Giants job. And he said, um... Was this sent for to Brian Flores? Because I'm interviewing there tomorrow. And then, Robert, oh, sorry, never mind. That was sent to a different guy. Uh, oops, uh, never mind. Ixnay, uh, which oh. is you know, how some of this got exposed. Really interesting piece of advocacy. But one of the things he details there is the history of racism in the NFL. You know, there was a time when black players were completely banned from the league um, in the 40s, you know, slowly, gradually. Uh, uh, hiring black players to play, you know, not until the 80s did they have a black quarterback because there was an assumption that blacks lacked the faculty somehow to play the quarterback position, you know, kind of the glamour spot. No black head coach uh, until the 80s, um, you know, still no black commissioner. Um, and so, you know, really interesting how these things go kind of in baby steps. There'll be a, you know, a moment, a breakthrough, and then decades go by for, before there's another. And so the idea of black head coaches, there's, 
is he quotes currently one black head coach, Mike Tomlin of the Pittsburgh Steelers, who's been there longer than any coach, I think, in the NFL out of 32 teams. But 70 percent of the players are black and most of the head coaches come from the ranks of prior players, you know, retired players after uh, distinguished careers. And so, you know, what's going on there? I saw a replay, maybe you guys saw this too, of the interview that Ted Koppel did with Al Campanis, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, where he was asked about why aren't there more black, uh, you know, executives in baseball and more black managers in baseball. And he, he was the general manager of the Dodgers at the time. And he just, you know, outright said they, they don't have the necessities to uh, make those decisions to be field managers or general managers. You know, sure, they're great athletes and they can play center field for you. But And, you know, Ted Koppel keeps saying, wait, maybe you're confused by what I'm asking you. He gives him like three opportunities to get out of it. And he doesn't and finally says that's just garbage. Um, and, you know, no doubt some of this is still going on. What's difficult about proving any sort of discrimination, of course, is there are so many variables that go into choosing a head coach. Uh, you know, a lot of intangibles because your coach is not just your field manager, but also kind of the face of your franchise and you need them to do PR and public speaking and all kinds of things. And so there, because there's so many variables, it's hard to pinpoint that any one decision is based on race discrimination. And because you have to prove that it's the but for reason, there are all kinds of other reasons you can use as a pretext for, you know, we wanted to choose this other guy because he brings this other thing to the table. Um, so I, I don't know that this will result in the hiring of Brian Flores anywhere. And so, as Jill said, it is a courageous moment because he is perhaps in the same way that Colin Kaepernick uh, pr pretty much sacrificed his own career to make a bigger statement. Um, I think it can bring change because, uh, as we've talked about before, um, the value of diversity in organizations is a real thing and matters. When you have players who are 70% black on your team, they want to see some representation. It doesn't mean every coach needs to be black, but there should be some coaches who are black. And when it's, you know, this is an entertainment business, um, fans, uh, you know, uh, putting seats, people in the stands, uh, the, the fan base, the people who are investing and in buying the jerseys and all these kinds of things want to see blacks getting opportunities at every level. And so if you're excluding blacks from the highest level of the sport, general managers and uh, base, or football executives and football coaches, it's going to have a diminishing effect on the brand. Um, you know, they've made some strides since Colin Kaepernick, but, uh, you know, I, th I think they've, uh, ha you know, have still failed to remedy some of the concerns that we saw there with his, um, his statements about racism in America. And so I think they need to think about their brand image as much as anything. So some of the things he's asking for, which are investment in training and opportunities and investment in co assistant coaches from, you know, where the ranks of which uh, uh, are chosen the the head coaches, I think some of those things can make a difference uh, down the road. But I think exposing and, you know, let's not even start on sexism. That's a huge thing that we're seeing in the NFL as well. Uh, you know, the, the racist comments of John Gruden, uh, who got fired as the head coach of, uh, of the Raiders in the middle of the season, uh, that came out as uh, part of an investigation into a different team because of sexism that occurs there. There is an old boy network in these sports teams that I think um, is beginning to be reckoned with. Uh, and I think it's really healthy for the organization organizations for them to clean house and be transparent and be, you know, accessible to all people and not be, you know, excluding people on the basis of race or gender or other things. It's just, you know, the word that comes to mind is it's exhausting. I don't want to have to like, again, I'm not surprised. It's so awful, but we can't be exhausted, right? We have to embrace hope. Um, and that uh, by the, I'm inspired by the courage of Brian Flores, because while he may not benefit from it, I think there may be a generation of coaches and the sport 
in its uh, entirety that will benefit from his act of courage. And Barb, if I could add, I think it's not just in the NFL and not just in sports, but this is opening, I hope, a broader discussion of diversity in the workplace, diversity on corporate boards, diversity in universities, diversity in law schools. Um, There's really a lot that needs to be done to see the benefits of that kind of diversity. So, um, and, and that includes gender as well as race and all, all other forms of diversity. Barb, you wrote a little something about that, didn't you? Yeah, thanks. I did. I, I actually wrote a piece this week for um, Cafe Insider about diversity on the Supreme Court. You know, there have been some critics we're hearing saying that um, it is racist for Joe Biden to pledge that he will appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. Uh, and I push back on that. I, you know, I mean, the, the racism is that for 200 years, we have not had a black woman on the Supreme Court. But, um, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit last week with regard to affirmative action in higher education, that, you know, people want to look at the text of the Constitution and say the 14th Amendment provides for equal protection under the law, which prohibits racial discrimination. But the Supreme Court itself has recognized that racial preferences are appropriate and has upheld them when there is, uh, it is narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest and has found that diversity in education is a compelling governmental interest because it improves the educational experience for everyone to have different viewpoints and different perspectives there. In my own work at the U.S. Attorney's Office, we made better decisions when we had a diverse group of people making decisions. You know, when someone had the perspective that, you know, just because somebody ran from the police doesn't mean he was guilty of a crime. Maybe he was just afraid of getting beat up. Uh, that's a great perspective because you know there's going to be that perspective on the jury. So it's great to hear it. Or maybe someone says, you know, in my immigrant community, uh, just because you don't make eye contact with a person in a position of authority doesn't mean you're suspicious. It might mean in their home country that's a sign of respect. And so having those different perspectives at the table helped us to make better decisions. And the same is true at the Supreme Court and, you know, for representation and credibility and legitimacy to have a court that looks like America will give it public confidence as well as better decisions. And so I think in the same way, having that diversity um, uh, in the NFL is is a benefit for everybody. And so this idea that it's 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 racism unless you're colorblind, I think is really is really short sighted and is missing that nuance. Kim, you wrote a piece about this, too, about um, the additional burdens on people of color who are working, you know, and some say, uh, you know, uh, who was it? Uh, Senator uh, Kennedy from <laughs> Louisiana, who said, I want a justice. Uh, I don't want a justice who's more interested in reading the J. Crew catalog than uh, the law books. Uh, you know what an un- unbelievable yeah. insult to the jurists that um, Joe Biden is considering for the Supreme Court. And you point out the additional burdens uh, that w- women of color who are lawyers uh, undertake. Absolutely. Tell us about that. And I just want to start off uh, by. Uh telling the senator to welcome uh, to the new millennium when we do look at J. Crew on a place called the interweb. You know, uh, we don't really use, I don't think I've seen a J. Crew catalog (laughs) in a decade, but I digress. Um, Yes. So this attack on the nominee, the still yet to be named nominee on the basis of qualifications, um, I just thought that that was a very rich uh, area uh, of attack by Republicans um, uh, like Senator Kennedy and others, given that the only thing they know about this nominee is that she will be Black and she will be a woman. 
Um, it's incredibly insulting. It, Ted Cruz can try to spin this somehow, that it's somehow insulting to the Black women. No, Ted Cruz, the Black women have already been insulted. <laughs> And they're insulted by this entire line of questioning. It's not the president that's insulting. It's the fact that in addition to the hurdles that are in place for women and people of color, and I say that the um, uh, the the obstacles Black women face are greater than just the sum of the racism and the sexism. It's a special, it's a special brew. Um, and all the obstacles that that puts in place in terms of being able to have access to good schools in order to think about law school, to have the, the financial backing to be able to get yourself to law school, pay for law school, the student loans, um, the, the ed, um, hiring obstacles and all the actual systemic obstacles that we know about. When you're a Black woman in law school, law firms, courthouses, you're in a space where most people don't expect to find you. And so you have to not only do your job, but you're constantly proving that you belong in that space. And it's not just your job that's on the line. You know, if you make a mistake, if you don't conform, they're not going to conform to you. You have to conform to your environment. If you don't do that, not only will it uh, possibly cost you your job or promotions, but you know, A, it will reinforce the idea of others that you know, you're just a diversity hire, you know, you guys really can't hack it. This isn't for you. Uh, and it will make it harder for all the Black women coming up behind you, graduating from law school, entering the field and doing the same thing if you make a mistake. So it's an enormous amount of pressure. It's exhausting. And you have to do it with a smile. I mean, one thing that I know won't happen at the confirmation hearings of our uh, nominee when we uh, get her. She will not melt down like a child the way now Justice Brett Kavanaugh mm. did during Thank his you. confirmation <laughs> hearing. I like I fear. mean, it's a national <laughs> disgrace, that. you know. She, although she will actually have reason to be angry and rail out against the racism that's been displayed at her, she will not call it a high-tech lynching. Why? Because then she will look like an angry Black woman. She's going to have to keep her cool, keep her composure. But you know what? She's had a career of experience doing that, so she will be able to do it. We saw some developments in the January 6th investigation this week, and we're beginning to see some of those documents that were turned over by the National Archives after the courts have rejected President Donald Trump's claims of executive privilege, and some of them are doozies. Um, first, Joyce, let me ask you about this. Um, you wrote about this, too. We learned about some of those uh, draft executive orders that have been turned over to the committee relating to the proposed seizure of voting machines. And we learned there's been some good reporting this week um, about some of the drama surrounding those. Can you tell us about what we've been learning about this issue and, and why it might be significant? Yeah, the reporting has just been riveting. It says that at least two, uh, maybe more, draft executive orders, and actually now we're even learning about conversations that Trump had, all centering on seizure of voting machines. First, Trump tried it with Bill Barr at the Justice Department, and at least DOJ has technically some authority to investigate election fraud. But Barr rejected Trump. Clearly, it was out of bounds. And at that point, what we've now seen is this draft executive order that, that circulated that would have authorized the Department of Defense to seize voting machines. And so we have at least 
two executive orders that we're aware in circulation, one for DOD and one for DHS. Uh, A very interesting question here, because now there's this direct linkage to the president being involved in this plot. It's just not some crazy Kraken thing that Sidney Powell was circulating. And so there's this very interesting question that I haven't seen anyone address that I've been dying to raise with you guys. And the question is, what exactly did they think that they were going to do with those voting machines? (laughs) I have a a really good friend, a former probate judge here in Alabama, who, who ran the nuts and bolts of elections for 20 years. And despite being a Democrat, he became one of the people that was sent to, you guys will remember, um, in 2017, Trump created this election integrity commission that was supposed to look for fraud. They made the the mistake of appointing my friend to that commission, and he became a real thorn in their side, you know, repeatedly pointing out that there was no fraud, but hey, we need to do all this stuff to help counties be able to afford the equipment that they need. And so I asked him, what what do you think they were going to do with the machines? And he said, you know, there's not really anything that you can do unless you're super sophisticated to completely wipe those machines. There's backups, there's paper ballots. And so that's sort of what I've been wondering. What is it that they were going to do? Was this really just a clown car conspiracy where they had no idea what they were about, but it just sounded like a good idea? Were they going to seize the machines and then just tell lies about what was on them, right? Just seize them and, and never let them see the light of day again. It, it, in some ways, it doesn't matter whether they were incompetent conspirators or competent conspirators. This notion that they would take these serious steps, illegal steps, to try to intervene and overturn the election, I, I think increasingly this evidence is just becoming a snowpocalypse of evidence. And the question that I have more and more is, Where's DOJ? You know, we heard the attorney general promise us in his January 5 speech that DOJ was investigating. I'm waiting to see the signs of that. Yeah, that's super interesting, Joyce. Um, You know, Trump's MO has always been this, I don't really need any there there. I just need to say there's some there and let me do the rest. You know, he said that to the president of Ukraine, just announce an investigation. He was asking the DOJ people to just announce. You know, if if he seizes the machines and just says, we we detected fraud, like that's that's enough. So I I, I don't know what it was. The one thing that sticks in my mind is how Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani kept saying the evidence is coming. And even in court cases, they would say, you know, well, we have this evidence that we will present. And I wonder if they thought they were going to get something off of the machines. I'm very curious about this. Or or if they could just fabricate it once they had the machines. Yeah, I think fabricating it is what they had in mind. They cannot have possibly thought that there was anything more to it than that. It was a clown car. Well, we know Bill Barr told them there wasn't. Right? In December. Exactly. Bill Barr told them it wasn't. So, you know, this wasn't like a good faith uh, expectation, you, I don't think. You make the point that Trump said, just, you know, just just keep something alive and leave the rest to me and the members of Congress. You know, just... Yeah. It's such an the established MO for Congress. him. You know, it's, it's one of those things where the law has this concept that you can actually introduce evidence of prior bad conduct by a defendant, stuff that you couldn't normally get into evidence, if it helps to establish the way that they've operated yes. over yeah, and over. Well. And this is what Trump does all the time. It just, it just reeks of his involvement. Yeah. 
Jill, let me ask you about another aspect that has come out in the past week or so. There's been this disclosure of memos by other lawyers for Trump describing a strategy for overturning results in swing states. Um, Can you tell us about those memos and why they might be important to the investigation? Yes. Great question, because it goes back even further than some of the other election overturning activities. Um, This goes back to November. There was one memo and in December, a second memo. And it shows, again, the underlying overarching conspiracy that this was all about overturning the election. Um, One of the memos was received by a lawyer in Wisconsin named Trupius. I I hope I'm saying his name correctly, James R. Trupius. And the other, it came from a lawyer who actually has, I, I looked him up on, you know, LinkedIn, and he, you know, is a Harvard Law grad. He uh, clerked for um, two very good law firms uh, as summer associates. And so it's hard to say how unserious these memos were, but they were suggesting uh, ways to overcome the real election results And it was part of the pressure on Vice President Pence to say, you have the power to overturn this election. And Trump recently said those exact words. He had the power to overturn it. He should have overturned it. And today, um, which is yesterday, if you're listening to it now, (laughs) um, Pence has finally spoken out saying that he didn't have the power and that Trump is wrong to have said that he had the power. But they were suggesting that it was a reasonable course of action to have um, all of these uh, fake electors, for example, and to have them meet in December as is required of electors. They were supposed to meet on December 14th. And it also made January 6th the key deadline. So that's one of the reasons they're so important is it focuses on January 6th as we have until then to get this undone. Let's just play for time. Let's drag it out. Let's make sure that by the 6th, we can maybe get things going, which, of course, by the time they didn't reach that, that's what led to the call out to fight like hell and march to the Capitol, which is what led to the violence of January 6th. So all of this was meant to have the fake electors start to meet on the 14th and to swear that they were the duly elected electors that Donald Trump had won. And this is a ridiculous idea, but they thought, well, at least we could use it to throw confusion and chaos and to give a reason for Pence to say, we're going to have to put this to Congress because we can't have a decision because there's two slates of electors. There aren't two slates of electors. There's only one certified. But this is what they were thinking. So shame on these lawyers who submitted these to the National Archives, to the um, Congress, and to courts. And I think that's grounds for their being disbarred because they lied to a court. And that's the very least of what should happen to them, to say nothing about criminal conspiracy to interfere in an election. Yeah, so we've got these kind of two different threads coming, this thing about the seizing of the 
uh, machines and the thing you just discussed, Jill, with this effort to uh, submit false slates of electors. Um, and as all this new evidence is coming to light, Kim, let me ask you about this. It seems like Donald Trump is becoming more vocal in defending the January 6th attackers. Uh, last weekend, he had one of these rallies, uh, and he said that he would consider pardons for the January 6th attackers if he returns to the presidency. Uh, he issued a statement saying that Mike Pence could have overturned the election. He's kind of doubling down on all of this stuff very publicly. He also gave an interview defending the January 6th attackers as patriots. He noted that some were soldiers and police officers. Are, are these damaging <laughs> admissions? Or is this just, you know, the same strategy that he used kind of effectively to undermine the Mueller uh, investigation? Think, I mean, I think very clearly it's both. I, I mean, know. first of all, you have someone yeah. who is the very last thing on his mind is, oh, perhaps I shouldn't say this thing that came into my head because that could be used against me or that could be seen as an admission and make it easier for one of these cases used against me to, to be proven. No, he's just going to get because he's never been held accountable for anything before. So I don't even know. I mean, whomever his legal team is, they've got the worst client because he will never listen to any advice. Could you imagine a client that just would not listen to your advice at all? No. And he's no. going to do what he's going to do and you're going to have to go and try to clean it up. I thought this was all a string of admissions, the best one being the term overturn the election. I mean, could you imagine if he was being savvy about this, the damage he could have done? Um, so yes, I do think that it is bad news legally. But on the flip side, again, he's yet to be held accountable for anything. So I don't know what's going to happen with the ultimate ending of all of this, whether he will be held accountable or not. He's always eluded it thus far. Uh, but legally speaking, yeah, what he's doing is damaging to his case. Yeah. How about this one statement, Kim, that he made at that same rally where he said that, um, you know, these prosecutors who are investigating him are racist <laughs> and urging his supporters to take to the streets if he's indicted. But can you do um, that legally? No, I mean, there are laws against things like incitement. There's laws against uh, disorderly conduct. There's There are also laws against uh, starting an insurrection. So, no, there are a lot there are a lot of things if he if he causes his supporters to go out and cause a January 6th like event, all of that is just as illegal and breaks likely as many laws as something like January 6th. But that racist comment, I, <laughs> that one's particularly interesting. Yeah. Again, it, it doesn't ha you don't have to go yeah. very deep to read him. I'm not a psychologist, but you know, there's something called deflection. Uh, when you're feeling something yeah. and so you accuse someone else of doing it. Remember when uh, Yamish Alcindor, our friend, asked him a question mm -hmm. and he said, what a racist question. And it had nothing to <laughs> It just so <laughs> happens that the, D that the DAs yeah. in all the places investigating him, uh, like New York and Georgia, yeah. uh, have something in common. So when... Yeah, although science well, now, is present, right? Now, and but now, now, now Alvin and Bragg, now it's racist, right? but now, yes. Yeah. So it's, that's just, that's very coincidental. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. Well, I, I, you know, I think we could have a whole discussion about this, but such a big part of Trump's appeal is to keep apart, to divide um, poor whites and blacks. Because if that group ever united, they would be a powerful force. And if you can divide them, um, you have to do it by stoking racism. Uh, and I think that's a big part of, of Trump's strategy is 
deliberately dividing people, which is just so, uh, so awful. Please um, let's take that up one day, because that's the strategy that flipped Alabama in the 1990s. Yeah. And we should really talk about that as we head yeah. into the midterms. Yeah, I, th- I agree. The Southern strategy, right? It was something Nixon Well, yeah, this is sort of different perfected. than the Southern strategy, but yeah. yeah. Well, let's, uh, Jill, let me just ask you about um, the, this threat that, that Trump has made about, um, you know, if these racist prosecutors indict me, then uh, you should all take to the streets. What are the potential consequences of a threat like that? Do you think that it can um, intimidate prosecutors or can it incite violence or can it even taint a jury pool Uh, of potential jurors in a trial involving Donald Trump? It certainly can incite violence. It can certainly taint a jury pool. It can actually lead to the kind of violence for which you would want to hold the person who incited it responsible for death or destruction or maiming, whatever it is. Whether it will intimidate prosecutors, I'd say not. I think that they will continue to do their job, although, of course, The DA in Fulton County has asked the FBI to do a threat assessment because that's a legitimate fear that the supporters of Donald Trump will respond to him as they did on January 6th, and they will do something terrible. So while I think the prosecutors are going to stay with what they are doing, you also have to worry about what about the jury? If there's an indictment, what about the grand jury to get an indictment? Will they be intimidated? Will they be afraid? Um, It's easier to keep their identity secret than it is, of course, the prosecutors who are the people he specifically called out. So it's a terrible thing, and it could lead to, I would hope, accountability. But as we've been saying, where is... Merrick Garland, where is the accountability for all of the terrible things that have happened? Yeah, I, uh, I hope it's coming. And I, I am one who is, um, is as urgently as we need accountability. Um, I think we can all appreciate it takes a lot of time to put it together. I'm still hopeful that they're working on it. Um, but Joyce, um, I, I just want to think about the th- a threat like this and, and Donald Trump's strategy in, um, in making a threat like this. I mean, I don't know if it's a threat, but it's an invitation uh, for protesters to take to the streets. Do you think it would give any pause to the prosecutors? Like, we better not indict because we might have civil unrest or a riot or overthrow of the government on our hands? Or will it just strengthen the resolve to hold them accountable? Oh, you know, I don't know about you, Barb, but every time somebody threatened me, if I continued on with the case, I know I just folded my cards and (laughs) and went home, right? Um, I I suspect that... um, these prosecutors are all made of sterner stuff, uh, uh, both Alvin Braggs and, and Fonnie Willis down in Georgia, and then, of course, Tish James, who's the attorney general, who's working with Alvin Bragg in New York. Y- you know, there's nothing like a good threat to get your juices going yeah. when you're a prosecutor. And I remember there was a period of time where um, uh, I was working on a case where some threats had been made. And if I wanted to go running at lunch, which was what I did every day, uh, I was supposed to have an agent running with me. Mm. And that certainly made me double down on my resolve to get everything ready yeah. to go in the case pretty quickly. I think that Trump may have had uh, not the desired effect on prosecutors, 
But but look, I don't think we should be glib about what he did here because this isn't taking out a contract on a prosecutor. This is threatening round two of the January 6th yes. insurrection, except against a local prosecutor. Yes, she's the FBI for protection. You know, this notion that she did, but let me say I love what she did. I think she's very smart, and she could have just picked up the phone, right, and called Chris Ray, the director of the FBI. They're both Atlanta prosecutors. She didn't. She put it in a letter, and she made it very public. Mm-hmm. And I think it, this is the answer to your question about her response to the threat. She sort of doubled down, and she said, you know, we're not going to be moved. We have a job to do. And FBI, I may just be the district attorney in Fulton County, but it's up to you to protect my courthouse and my people because we've got work to do down here. Yeah, and, you know, another good topic for a future episode would be the kinds of threats that prosecutors get or even the kinds of threats Mm -hmm. that the media get. uh, And all of us have gotten in our various roles. Um, It's a very real thing, and I think it's a real danger to democracy. And I agree with you, Joyce, that I think that it will only strengthen the resolve of the prosecutors involved to say it's all the more important that I show that I will not be intimidated. But, um, Jill, let me just ask you one last question, and we'll probably need to wrap up this segment. I remember that it was um, at Gerald Ford who said about Richard Nixon, rather than pursuing, uh, you know, further crimes against him, that it was important to pardon him because our long national nightmare was over. It was good for the country to get closure and move on. Um, you know, he was trying to avoid something awful, uh, which could have been uh, terrible for the country. Is there any concern that indicting Donald Trump would be so explosive that it is better for our country to avoid it? Or um, have we learned from maybe uh, Gerald Ford made a mistake then? Do you have a thought on that? I do. And let me start with I disagreed with Gerald Ford at the time it happened. And I've had the experience now of being on a panel at the Ford Library and Museum uh, to discuss his action of pardoning. And while I think he was well-motivated, I think it was wrong. I think that if Nixon had been indicted, that maybe there would have been a message sent that would have stopped Donald Trump. But there's a big difference here that is probably more important than that, and that is the threat has not gone away. Richard Nixon resigned and was gone and lost power immediately. Donald Trump this week is saying the same lies about the election fraud and even this threat and his promise of, if I'm elected again, I'll pardon all the people who were January 6th insurrectionists. These are things that are threatening our democracy right now today. So whatever reason there might have been in Gerald Ford's mind to pardon Nixon, whatever there might have been in the mind of Leon Jaworski and not letting us indict Nixon, which is something that I fought for the day he resigned. We fought to bring in, I mean, he was now just a private citizen. Why not indict him? We had mm-hmm. more than ample evidence. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what, you know, Leon was thinking and saying, no, that's the wrong thing to do. It's very different now because now you have to stop an ongoing threat. Yeah. It's not something that's gone away. So yes, indict Donald Trump based on evidence, based on meeting all the elements of the crime, based on being able to convince a jury, even of Trump supporters, of the danger that he poses. Yes, indict. 
That's such an interesting insight, Jill. Thank you for sharing that. I love your wisdom with that historical perspective. Joyce, I think a better project than the Knitting Olympics would be you should start a knitting project and you will not finish it until Donald Trump <laughs> is indicted. It might be the longest scarf ever. Um, okay, Barb, I'll take that one under advisement. Jill, I know you're a huge fan of Magic Spoon. What's your favorite way to eat it right now? It's still my favorite way is on top of some Greek yogurt and some fresh berries. I love it. But I also have to admit, I keep it in my car in a little baggie (laughs) as a protein snack for when I just have that urge to have something. I'm actually eating protein, even though it tastes wonderful and looks like looks like a cereal, but it isn't. It's wonderful. Barb, have you tried it? Yeah, I love Magic Spoon. As I've discussed before, my favorite time to eat cereal is my late night meal. You know, you get home at nine or 10 o'clock and you don't want to have a big heavy meal. And so that's my time of day. And so Magic Spoon comes in very handy for that late night meal. Um, And, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be boring. Magic Spoon has amazing flavors that people will love, uh, but without all of the bad stuff. Um, It's an amazing midnight snack right before bed or for breakfast, or as you say, Jill, uh, snack at any time of day. It has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs uh, and 140 calories a serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. You can even build your own box and create a custom bundle from Magic Spoon's delicious flavors. There's cocoa, fruity, which is my favorite, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, cinnamon, cookies and cream, and the always popular maple waffle yes, flavor. I do like maple uh, maple waffle a lot, almost as much as I like that combo, cocoa and peanut butter, y'all, I'm telling you. They are all delicious, indulgent, and healthy. You've got to try them. Go to magicspoon.com slash sister to grab a custom bundle of cereal and start your new year off right. And be sure to use our promo code sister at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com sister and use the code sister to save $5 off or look for the link in our show notes. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Here, right matters. I remember hearing Alexander Vindman testify and hearing him say those words, and he made us all proud when he did that. He reminded us to be the kind of people who do the right thing in the face of a great uh, and a powerful wrong and to speak the truth to power. And this week, Alexander Vindman is back in the news because of a lawsuit he's the plaintiff in. So let's get up to speed. First, Kim, remind us who Alexander Vindman is and the role he played in in the downfall of the Trump presidency. Yes. So Alexander Vindman is a retired Army lieutenant, and he actually has a really uh, 
unbelievable and incredible story. He and his twin brother were children when his family fled Russia and came to the United States as refugees. Um, he and his family are Jewish, which unfortunately is relevant um, to some of what we talk about later. Um, but he went into the army. He earned a Purple Heart based on injuries he suffered in the Iraq War. He really um, became a proud American and a hero. Uh, and in 2018, he became the director for European Affairs for the United States National Security Council under President Trump. And he was a specialist in Eurasia. He served in that role until he was escorted from the premises in February of 2020 because he had served as a crucial witness in the impeachment investigation of President Trump. This is impeachment number one for those keeping track, um, where Vindman presented evidence that Trump abused his power by pressuring Ukrainian officials for dirt on his likely presidential campaign opponent, then Senator Joe Biden. So worth noting that this is one of those many times where Trump said, don't worry about the substance, just announce the investigation and I can take it from there. Part of that litany of Trump behavior we talked about earlier. But Barb, what's the lawsuit about? Who is Vindman sued? What are the allegations? And do you think he has a chance? He has sued uh, Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and two uh, members of the Trump administration, the deputy chief of staff, Dan Scavino, and Julia Hahn, who worked in communications at the White House, and basically alleges that they conspired to smear him, to retaliate against him for his testimony at that hearing, you know, in, in violation of the law. So it's it's kind of a whistleblower claim, but he actually has used the what's known as the Ku Klux Klan Act, which was passed to uh, prevent people from interfering with the exercise of certain rights. And so he's got a number of different counts in there, uh, but essentially the gist of them is that they conspired to retaliate against him for discharging the duties of his job. Uh, he had a job, he shared information that he believed was appropriate, and they retaliated against him by publicly injuring him. You know, some of the things he said is that he was a spy for Ukraine, and, and he is a career uh, military officer. He worked, worked for the National Security Council. He had to leave that job. His brother was fired from his job. Um, and so he's filed a lawsuit. He is seeking um, a declaration that they violated the law as well as money damages against them. And, you know, this is one of those things where he will um, absolutely get beat up for this. You know, people sometimes say, I'm, I'm debating whether to file a lawsuit and what are the pros and cons. And there are a lot of cons because just by putting yourself out there, you are going to have people say a lot of bad things about you. You're putting your whole life uh, before the public eye for scrutiny. Um, so he's not going to be, you know, benefit a whole lot from this. He might get some, you know, money damages, but mostly he's doing it to take a stand to say, you can't do this, you know, here truth matters. And so I'm really, uh, you know, I don't know him. I've never met him, but I'm really proud of him for taking a stand here. So Jill, you've served as general counsel of the army, one of your many very interesting positions that we benefit a lot from the knowledge that you gained in that regard. And, and I'm hoping that you'll put it to work for us here. Is what happened to Vindman, is that sort of treatment of a member of the military typical? Is that politics as usual when you get to that sort of a high rank and work inside of the White House? Or is, is this something else? And, and, and if you'd also give us some sense of the cost to the country when we lose someone like Vindman, I think that'll round our discussion out. I would say that it takes a much higher rank than lieutenant colonel to get involved in politics. If you're going to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Certainly politics may play a role, and even at the general level. But 
the ordinary promotion of a military officer does not get involved in Democrat-Republican politics. Politics of the office plays a role just like it does in any job. Does your boss like you? Uh, but that's not politics. That's just office uh, strategies. And it is definitely not the typical way. Losing your job at the White House, your particular assignment, is something else again. The president has a right possibly to say who he wants serving on the National Security Council, but not about getting promoted. And the loss of any officer, but particularly someone who had the courage and convictions and ethics of Lieutenant Colonel Vinman is something that is a very big loss. And it affected not just Vinman, it affected his brother who didn't testify, but his brother had that same type of job and he lost his job. He did stay in the military. Vinman felt that he had been crushed and had no future in the military, so he had to retire from the military, which is a terrible loss for him who had devoted his career to that. But it also is a, a menace to witnesses because he lost it because he was a witness, and it's a menace to other officers from speaking out when they need to. And officers can only obey a legitimate command, a legal command. And there are some commands that they cannot and must stand up to. So if they're threatened in this way with this kind of retaliation, I think it's very bad for the military. Yeah, and not to mention the fact that they are threatened personally. Their their families are threatened. I mean, you know, he and his family have been um, they've been the subject of horrible anti-Semitic attacks, you know, and and, and uh, I mean, that's what this lawsuit is about is basically that he alleging alleging that these people tried to trash his reputation, trash his life. And it's really impacted him and his family in a tremendous way. So I can't imagine, um, as you said, what a loss it could be to the military for people who fear of something like that happening to them. Hey, Barb, you know that I love to read, but I literally have a stack of books, uh, you know, a mile high on my bed, uh, next to my bed, you know, on my shelves. And I I have trouble figuring out what to read first. What should I do? Yeah, well, you know, Blinkist is a good way to do that because you can get little previews through Blinkist um, in just a short period of time to figure out what you might like to read in more depth. Or you can look at Blinkist if you just want to get a taste of something maybe you don't have time to read about. But, you know, there's always stuff I'm interested in, like how the human mind works, how memory works, how sleep works. And a lot of those things can be learned in a in a short period of time with Blinkist. Certainly there's things we need a deeper dive in. But, you know, for things you don't have time to dig into deeply, Blinkist is great. How about you, Joyce? Have you been using Blinkist? You know, I do. I use Blinkist mostly to decide what to read next. But as I'm listening to you, Barb, I'm convinced that I might want to delve into some books I wouldn't otherwise get a chance to read. We all have limited time and and Blinkist really can help. So with 2022 here and, and the perfect time to up your game personally and professionally, we're here to recommend Blinkist to you. Blinkist is a powerful self-improvement tool that takes top nonfiction books and gives you key takeaways in text and audio explainers called Blinks that you can digest in just 15 minutes. Imagine learning the things you never had time for and getting exciting new perspectives that will upgrade your life and your career. 
Use blinks to tackle procrastination. Get started on developing an idea or business. Take your projects to the next level or absorb titles like The Work-Life Balance Myth by David McNeff or Hyperlearning by Edward Hess. And I certainly want to be talking about the work-life balance lately. But uh, for me, I loved Bob Woodward's fear for its deep insight into the flaws, dangers, and destructive actions taken by the Trump administration. Not only does it bring those deeds to light, but it shows us what we're up against so we can resolve to stop it and make sure we do everything possible to make sure our democracy survives. And that's certainly what all of us at Sisters in Law are about. But Blinkist is the way to find it. And right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash sisters to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash sisters to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash sisters or look for the link in our show notes. It's now time for one of my favorite parts of the show, which is our questions from listeners. We have the smartest audience. We get great questions. And this week, of course, is no different. In the future, if you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't have time to get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we sometimes answer some of the questions that we didn't get to during the show. Today, I'm going to take a question first from Kathleen O. Uh, And she asks, what are your thoughts about the suspension of Whoopi Goldberg for saying that the Holocaust was not about race? And let me start with you, Kim. Yeah, that was a very interesting thing. Um, Just to summarize, for people who haven't seen it, Whoopi Goldberg talking about the Holocaust was trying to distinguish it, saying that it wasn't about race. It was about man's humanity to man, um, either saying or insinuating that because everyone involved was white. It was not um, race. And uh, I certainly, you know, would realize that that would be problematic. I was um, happy that she apologized very quickly and said that she had had discussions uh, with people um, that she got a better understanding of what it was about and what the import of what she was saying was. And she uh, apologized. She was still suspended for two weeks. And, you know, in terms of the punishment there are all kinds of policies that govern all of us in an employment setting. If I violate a a rule at the Globe or MSNBC or NPR, um, I could face repercussions. So I don't, I don't know whether two weeks, if that was the right thing or not. I was happy that she seemed to understand that what she did not only was wrong, but that it had an impact, that it, that there was a consequence um, to it. And I think that's how we learn. Right. And that's how we, I think sometimes there's not as much room as there used to be for redemption for people. And the point that you want to have is for people to learn and do better. You don't just want to punish them. Um, And I could understand that. Look, I've spent a lot of time um, with, you know, all kinds of different people. I thought I had a pretty enlightening, uh, enlightened and progressive view of the world, um, including when it came to how you think about uh, Judaism. What what are the Jewish people? I've been to Israel. I've, I, 
and I sort of thought of it as, well, it's, it's cultural. It's not really religious because I know a lot of people who are not religious. Um, and, you know, it's it's something bigger. But even that wasn't exactly right. I, I um, learned something from an explanation by Jonathan um, Greenblatt at uh, ADL that just says, you know, the problem is people are trying to compartmentalize it, trying to call it one thing. And it's so many different things, all of those things, race, nationality, religion, culture at once, and none of those things. It's something of its own. And when you're trying to compare it apples and oranges, that's where things go wrong. And I could appreciate that as a journalist, because of course, like a journalist loves a category, right? We like to be able to categorize things and compare and contrast the categories and all. So it's something that I do feel in my gut trying to do, um, even though in my head, I think I want to get this right. And I want to understand understand um, these things in, uh, in an important way, because that's the only way that you can talk about them. So I appreciated the conversation. I learned something. I thought I knew a lot. And I think it's a lesson that we can all and we must all keep learning. Yeah, I thought the four of us had some really interesting conversations around that this week as we thought through uh, disc- answering this question and discussing our reflections on it. You know, I mean, number one, what she said, I thought was incredibly insensitive because she seemed to be diminishing uh, anti-Semitism as compared to racism. So I think the, the the gist of it was, you know, just really misguided. I, I do appreciate that she gave a fulsome um, uh, apology. And I just think it's a great teachable moment for all of us to think about, because I haven't thought about anti-Semitism as also being racism. Um, I've thought of it as being more religious discrimination. And Jill, you uh, enlightened me. You shared something um, that uh, helped explain that it, it is all of those things and that, you know, the Holocaust was about exterminating a race, uh, racial cleansing. And so I think thinking about it more broadly is really useful. Um, and I think Kim's point about category categorization is really useful. You know, these categories are human constructs. And it doesn't matter what we call it or how we categorize it. Hatred of people um, as a group is just wrong. And so um, I, I think that we get, uh, you know, too worked up about, you know, whether whether it's racism or whatever it is, anti-Semitism is, um, is really destructive uh, to our, our country. But I also thought it was just the value of diversity. In our little group here, we've got uh, Jewish representation, we've got Christian representation, we have black and white representation. And I thought that we all had, you know, came at this from different perspectives that was really useful. And, you know, because we trust each other, we were able to have a good conversation about it in a safe space. And so I think we want to try to replicate that here on air. I, I agree with you completely about it being a teachable moment and that maybe a conversation on The View would have been a better punishment than suspension. Um, but I, I, and I do want to stress that while we may not have a race listed as Jewish on the U.S. Census or any other form that you ever have mm-hmm. to fill out, it was the Nazi view that matters. And the Nazis saw the Jews as an inferior race to the master race of the Aryans. And so that it is very much mm-hmm. a race-based discrimination. And so saying that it wasn't racial was wrong. But I agree. And um, I think we'll post on, on our show notes um, Jonathan Greenblatt's ADL statement about explaining this and why they forgive her and think that she has learned from this. And also, um, I can't quite pronounce his name, but there is a the, the uh, thing that I sent you, Barb, 
um, was from a British comic who really gave in just a few, maybe a minute or two, a really good explanation of why it mattered. And I think I'd like to have that on our show notes as well. And and Joyce, why don't you close us out on this? Because it is such an important issue. Well, I've just been reflecting, listening to all three of you, how much wisdom um, I find in this room when we all get together on Fridays and how much I love and appreciate you guys. I think, you know, something that this really brings into focus for me is these are difficult issues, right? And you can have a good heart and want to help other people and be understanding and still not get it quite right because maybe Whoopi Goldberg didn't have that historical context of understanding that the Nazis and others have viewed uh, being Jewish as a racial classification. And so I think it's so important for us to be willing to have these conversations and listen to each other in good faith and try to help everybody to get to where they want to be. So I just, I love y'all and cherish you for conversations like this one. It's hard to go on to another question, but I'm going to go on. Um, And because we went long, maybe we'll only do two questions today. The second one is from Logan from Austin. And he asks, why did the judge refuse to accept the guilty pleas in the federal case against the killers of Ahmad Arbery? And the federal case is, of course, a civil rights action. Um, Joyce or Barb, who's going to answer that? Well, I'll, I'll start. You know, it's not actually quite clear why she rejected the plea, but I'm going to give you my speculation about what went on. It's true that the family objected to this plea agreement, and there was a lot of dispute about whether the Justice Department communicated with the family about what was included in the plea. But something that's really important to understand is that whether or not to accept a plea is not up to the family. It's up to the Justice Department, and and the Justice Department does not represent the family in a criminal prosecution. In fact, they represent the United States. They have to think about litigation risk and the deterrent ability of accepting a 30-year guilty plea with a confession to racist motive, and apparently that made sense to the Justice Department. And although they were bending over backwards here, trying to communicate with the family and keep them in the loop, it's clear that there was miscommunication. And, and that's just tragic for this family, uh, who, who my heart just goes out to, because the, the complexity and difficulty of being a victim in, in the federal criminal justice system is um, something that I have enormous compassion for. But that said... I don't think that that's why the judge rejected this plea. And Barb, I wonder what you think. This was an unusual kind of plea. Usually at a guilty plea, a judge has broad discretion about sentencing. But this was a plea agreement called an 11C1C agreement. It's an agreement where the judge does not have sentencing discretion. And the parties take that away from the judge by agreeing to a sentence. Here it was 30 years. And the judge talked about that in the hearing, you know, and she she said to the defendants, look, you have the the option, because I'm going to reject the plea, um, of going ahead and pleading guilty straight up, at which point I can sentence you to whatever I want. It can be 30 years, it can be more than 30 years, it can be less, or I'll let you revoke your pleas and, and go to trial. It's up to you. So I'm not so certain that she wouldn't have rejected this plea, even without this dispute from the family, because judges really dislike these 11C1C pleas. What do you think, Barb? I I agree with you, Joyce. I don't think that the family's objection alone was what 
uh, prevented this judge from accepting the plea. What she said was, um, I do not want my discretion to be cabined in this way. A C plea says the sentence shall be X. Um, and uh, she wanted instead a recommendation, which is more common in that district, so that she could perhaps accept their recommendation, but she had the freedom to uh, impose a sentence above or below that amount. Um, I should mention that a C plea is really common in some districts. It's common in my former district, in the Eastern District of Michigan, but apparently it's not the culture in this district, in Savannah, Georgia, and so the judge um, did not accept that plea. I think the family did not like the idea that the McMichaels would serve their prison sentence in a federal prison as opposed to a state prison, which by, you know, as far as prisons go, I wouldn't want to spend a night in any one of them. Federal prisons are generally much nicer than state prisons. And so part of the deal was that they would get to spend their sentence in a federal prison instead of a state prison. And the family objected to that, that they're getting this special treatment, that they're going to be treated better than maybe other people are. Um, And, you know, plenty of People, including black people, don't get that kind of treatment. Here were these white defendants who committed this heinous uh, hate crime, and they're going to get this nice treatment and go to a federal prison, and they didn't like that. I had Paul Butler come speak to my criminal law class this week, and he raised a really interesting point. And he said, if you care about criminal justice reform, you shouldn't want the conditions of confinement to be worse for someone as a condition of their punishment. It is enough that their liberty has been taken from them. We shouldn't wish upon them that that time be served in a way that is harsher or more unpleasant um, just because we want to extract more revenge upon them. And if you care about criminal justice reform, it shouldn't matter that the defendants are white and committed a hate crime against a black victim. I thought that was a really interesting point that he raised. Um, But I agree with you. I don't think that's probably what drove her decision, even if it was what was motivating um, their objection. Great answer. And thank you, all of you, for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy some of our fun merchandise and please support this week's sponsors, Framebridge, Magic Spoon, Blinkist, and HelloFresh. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review because it really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. And also one for DHS. Clearly out of bounds constitutionally. Uh, DOD plays absolutely no role in elections. Wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> Guys, for some reason, my dog just I walked in. I heard the door oh, open. What are we doing? I heard the door, door open. It was like a sound effect of a door. It was so like, you know, Dude, it was like Michael Jackson's thriller with a coffin open. I did not know she could open that door. I'm so sorry. Okay, let me. Did she turn the knob? But what? Like, <laughs> I don't know what that was. Sweetheart, can you get out of mommy's knitting? She's very scared of thunderstorms, so I think she just, she's sitting down now. All right, you stay here and we'll talk about Bill Barr. Um,